The Start On Demand. On demand. The day after the Winnipeg Jets lost their seventh game in a row, we tried to bring some fun and inspiring stories your way. For example, we speak to a Winnipeg man, an honorary colonel of the Fort Gary Horse Regiment. His goal today was to walk a full 20 kilometers through the streets of Winnipeg with 10 kilograms of gear as part of the Nijmegen Marches, the largest walking event in the world to honor and celebrate Canadian troops and Holland. We also head to Brandon, which has scored its first ever AAA under-15 female hockey team. And as we continue to celebrate mom, we asked you to tell us something funny about your mom. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, May 4th podcast of The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb yesterday, it's around 7.30, I think. I was watching John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, because why not? I felt like watching those movies again after that Bob Odenkirk movie. Nobody came out a couple of weeks ago that was shot in Winnipeg. Very similar to John Wick, so I wanted to revisit those. So I was charging my phone at the time, and I go and I look at my phone, and I see a series of texts, a tapestry of pseudo-obscenity and profanity that had been woven by one Loren McNabb concerning... The Winnipeg Jets. I'm trying to stop swearing, so I've been replacing <laughs> some words for others, and then I have to explain that just so you know, I'm still swearing. Just, I'm still mad, but I'm trying to be less offensive, and the, the game's offending me now. Just get a, I don't know how you are standing it, Greg, but uh, they lost again, seven in a row now, and I don't really know what comes next. They've scored 10 goals total in those seven games. I saw a stat on the interwebs last night i guess it was on twitter that the toronto maple leafs in their 20 previous periods of hockey they lost in overtime to montreal last night which means the jets are now tied for fourth place i I said this last week that maybe that's the strategy because i feel the jets match up better against toronto than they do against montreal and edmonton putting that aside the maple leafs had scored a goal in 20-2-0 consecutive periods. And here we are, the Jets mired in the seven-game losing streak, their longest since relocation, and uh, 10 total goals. And lots of people asking, like, how did we get here? How did we... I, I don't know. I have zero answers on this. All I know for sure, at least in last night's game, I saw zero signs of quit. Uh, the Jets dominated it on the shot clock. They drew a bunch of penalties. Their power play is is as inept as I've seen it in a very long time. But there was one play in particular. Andrew Kopp was on his hands and knees in the Ottawa zone last night. I think it was in the third period, trying to gain possession of the puck. And it just spoke to me that, okay, well, they are struggling, but they certainly haven't surrendered by any stretch of the imagination. But boy, oh boy, this is uh, frustrating for the team. Coaches, management, and the fans are restless. It's raised some interesting debate on Twitter last night uh, via our colleague Bob Irving, who was talking about the idea of luck, right? And whether you like the cliches or, or hate the cliches of, you know, good, you have to be good to be lucky and lucky to be good. And all sorts of debate was raging around that about, well, how do you create luck? You know, like luck's just luck. And they don't have any luck right now, it feels like. 
I've always believed luck is where preparation and opportunity meet. You create your own luck to a certain extent. You have to be able to recognize it. But there is, you know, a randomness, I suppose, Brett, to 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 that luck and bouncing pucks and whatnot. But those things tend to to even out over time. And I don't know if the Jets used up all their luck earlier in the season because uh, they don't seem to have any of it right now, if that's the word we want to use. Did you? How did that go? Luck is where uh, preparation and opportunity meet. Correct. Did you come up with that on your own, or did you read it on like a fortune cookie? I have no idea. It's just something that's been in my uh, in my my way of thinking for a long time. I must. It's a street it corner somewhere. in Winnipeg, Brett. You've never been to that street <laughs> corner where preparation and opportunity meet. It's straight off like Balmoral, Balmoral, and. Uh, Oh, you know, you know, you can see it from your window. Probably. Yeah. Colony, Balmoral, <laughs> Memorial, Isabel, Salter, Slaughter, Chuck Bridge. It's one of those you just, streets. You just took a wrong turn. The Jets took a wrong turn. They just gotta, you got to head north. If they go north, find their true north again, they'll be fine. So we've got Hextall and Hockey at 6.55. We've got the sounds of the game at 7.55. And, of course, Camp Poitras Jets at noon from 12 until 12.30. Also, this morning, just want to quickly talk about so when i started seeing the pictures on social media and come in from our colleagues uh this anti-restrictions rally or perhaps a freedom rally as they might call it at uh the law court building on broadway so i thought i'll go take a wander over there just see if they're still there i caught like the last three minutes of this thing right before this music started playing and the first thing i heard was masks should be illegal and i know that uh there are what a hundred people there maybe a couple hundred but a lot of people probably a lot more it seems like greg on uh, social media not too pleased with yet another one of these rallies all i can say is how selfish can you be what is the big flipping deal about putting on a mask how does that infringe on your freedom I know there are some people who have a hard time with them. I expressed, I shared a story last week or the week before about a time that I had a little bit of an overwhelming experience while wearing a mask. I removed myself from the situation. That was more about my my battle with anxiety more than anything else in the situation that I was in. But Loren, it's the selfishness. It's the self-centered. It's the, it's the self-importance that this subject has that's driving me nuts and and the inability to see the bigger picture as to why we're doing this and and the obstinance is overwhelming. What I'm concerned about and wondering is, is that sentiment growing? You know, a year ago we had, we also had anti-restriction rallies and they'd have, you know, a couple dozen people at it yesterday any numbers put it anywhere between 100 and 200 and this was in part a rally organized around the challenge that was filed in court yesterday and it continues today on behalf of seven churches that are basically arguing that the restrictions are violate, violating their constitutional rights and and so the rally was in support of that and and but it, it seemed to me that that was bigger numbers than we've seen before and is that sentiment growing and do we have more and more people out there who are just not doing what they're being asked to do and as a result what are we going to do about that you know we keep hearing there's going to be stepped up public health enforcement and mm-hmm. that the officers have been collecting video evidence at these rallies and then might hand out tickets after the fact we know that that church for example at the heart of this 
challenge in court has been fined several times. I think the report was up to $40,000 in fines. Are those fines being paid? Are, are those fines making a difference? Are those enforcement measures even working? I don't I don't know. I, I We discussed this off air before. I don't know if I'd want to be an officer or even a bylaw officer sent into that rally to try to ticket people. I feel like you'd be met with a whole lot of animosity. But what do we do about it? Because that's also what's bugging people. Not just seeing that, not just the selfishness as you put it, but just seeing that out there and then not having anything being done about it. A Winnipeg mom has taken to social media to share her family's experience with COVID. Not just how her son first got it, but how it's now hitting her. Yeah, and this is a post she wrote this week from her hospital bed. Yesterday on the news with Richard and Julie, Julie Buckingham shared how we all in the audience and here at CGOB first met this family when they opened up about a week ago with their concerns about COVID and kids. A dramatic turn in a Winnipeg family's COVID-19 story. We first learned of them just days ago, Wednesday, April 28th, as brought to us by Global's Brittany Greenslade. Sarah Carroll and her family are back in isolation. Her nine-year-old son Thomas is one of 22 people connected to an outbreak at Ecole Marianne Gabri that took less than two weeks to spread throughout the school. Carol says contact tracers confirmed the in-school transmission. She says she's frustrated with the messaging from public health officials. They continued their dialogue saying that they're seeing no evidence of transmission in schools and that this was a direct correlation of people violating health orders. And I'm sitting here without income for several weeks, you know, my husband and I, and it just felt like such a slap in the face. Currently, Carol says her child has no lesson plan or work because teachers are sick too. Although there's been some in-school transmission, like in this case, it still remains low. There's been 364 school-aged cases and school staff cases in Manitoba in the past two weeks. More than 38,000 Manitobans have tested positive across the province since the start of the pandemic. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. Fast forward to early today, that same wife and mom, Sarah Carroll, made a public post on Facebook from a hospital bed. This is what it says. Fear-mongering, I used to think. That's what I used to think when I'd see COVID posts over and over. I hated them too, just like some of you. I hated the debates, the anger, the fights, the ongoing threads. I wanted to shut it all off, too. I'm a personal trainer. I teach fitness classes. I lift weights, yoga, bike, run, and swim multiple times a day, week. I drink three to five liters of water a day, take supplements and vitamins, and rarely get less than eight hours of sleep. I get regular chiropractic care, massage, and therapy as needed. I eat a very low-sugar diet and nourish my body with lots of nutritious food. I was due to start a trail running series this past weekend and registered for a triathlon in June. COVID didn't care. Though I have a history with lung infections and trouble fighting severe illness, my lifestyle changed eight years ago, which changed my life. I came off all my meds, lost nearly 100 pounds, and rarely got sick again. I have a resting heart rate average of 50 to 55, healthy blood pressure, and healthy blood sugars. I take no medication. I am a thicker gal, sure, but not obese by any means. COVID didn't care. 
Here I am at 4 a.m. with my husband on the phone, comforting me with soaring fevers, dropping oxygen, and violently puking for the sixth day straight. My heart rate at resting has been 120 plus. Tonight, it was 180. My nurses are exhausted and they're scared. The number of young and healthy people in here increases every day. The number of children in hospital is increasing every day. These new strains are hitting young people hard. ICUs and beds are on the verge of capacity soon. I never would have guessed my children had COVID based on their symptoms. I never would have thought to test them either as it was so mild. We only did because we were advised to after being a close contact at school. It's happening and it's happening quick. More and more adults are catching it from kids who are catching it at school. I don't share this to scare people or flood your COVID polluted pages. I share this because I care about you and I want you to be safe. I want to stop seeing maskless protests outside my hospital window. Clearly a powerful message. And I just wonder if part of getting the message to the masses is more stories like this, not to fear monger, but to inform and to let people know what's going on on the inside. And, you know, I just had a thought this morning, 17 people on average over the course of the last decade die from alcohol-related incidents on our highways and roads. 17. We've had 979 Manitobans died from COVID-19 this year in the past 13 months. Think of all the restrictions. Think of all the lifestyle changes that we've made over the years in order to combat drinking and driving. Think of the penalties. Think of the fines. Think of the ticket. All of the different things that can happen to you when you get caught for drinking and driving. And we're doing that to get it down to zero. We're doing most of that, all of that, to get drinking and driving deaths down to zero. 17 deaths. Think of the changes we've made in our lives in order to get that number as low as it is, and it needs to go to zero. And we're worked up about wearing a piece of cloth on our face when we've had nearly a thousand Manitobans die in 13 months. I think it's the least we can do. I'm really, really tired of this conversation, and I'm tired of the pushback. It's absolutely ludicrous. We keep looking for reasons to dodge around these restrictions. Some of them don't make sense to us. Yeah, I get it. But think of the effort and why we're doing it. Now we want you to tell us a story about something funny about your mom. Whether it's something funny specifically that she did, like if there's a moment that you want to tell us about, do that. Or maybe there's just something funny that she does frequently that makes you smile and laugh. Whatever. Tell us a story. 204-780-6868. Even if it was something that's funny now, but maybe wasn't so funny at the time. Cam Poitras, let's start with you, sir. Well, it's, this is this is one of my favorite pastimes, especially when I get together with my uh, with my brothers is, is laugh at our, my mom. I mean, <laughs> that's what we do. That's what you do as a kid. I mean, it's... You, and uh, Loren, get ready for this because this is coming for you. Two kids are going to pester you and bother you and laugh at you for the rest of your life. So get ready for that. Uh, my, 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 yeah, just, uh, just to really perk you up there. Um, my, um, yeah, my mom, she's like a, she's like a bulldog. Like she just, she, she, when she goes at a task, it has to be completed one hundred percent 
and, and and that's it. And it's like, all right, we gotta keep going. We gotta keep going. But she she is unrelenting. She she does plumbing. She does flooring. She'll garden. She'll uh, try and fix her car. I've been out picking parts with her for her car. Like she just she's she she doesn't she doesn't stop. And um, I mean that's a it's a great trait to have. And, and she's been a, a a great matriarch to me in my in my life and, and and stuff like that. But man, sometimes I wish it's like, mom, okay, we're exhausted. We've been at this for ten hours already. Can't we just stop, take a break? Wow, we've got to finish it now. We got to get done, and then we can take a break. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cam's mom sounds intense. She is intense. Well, where do you think I got this from? Fair point. <laughs> Fair point. Jeff Braun, what about you? When I was a kid, I had a paper route in Altona, and I would do it by myself all the time, but on a really cold winter day, mom would drive me around to deliver the paper so I wouldn't get frostbite and die. And so we're doing the route on a really cold winter day, and we come across in the street a giant chunk of ice. And it's a, it's a really big chunk of ice, and it's right in the middle of the street. There's no driving around it. Um, I don't know why my mom didn't say, get out of the car and go move that piece of ice. Instead, she said, do you think I can drive over it? <laughs> and I was 12 years old, and I, I, I knew she couldn't, but I wanted to see what was going to happen. So I said, go for it, Mom. And she hits the gas, and we go over the ice, and the ice gets caught underneath the car somewhere, and we drag it for a few feet. And then the ice just tore the muffler right off the car. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, "When she, earlier she should have said, get out of the car, move the ice. Now she said, get out of the car and put the muffler in the trunk, please. And don't tell dad I did this. We'll just tell him that it fell off. And so I, I, don't, I still don't know if my dad ever found out what actually happened. But he was not impressed when he came home and saw the muffler sticking out of the trunk of the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is great. I think I, I, maybe not all, but I know many of us have taken a run at something during the winter that we definitely should not have. Oh, yeah. like, oh, I think I can get over that. No problem. And then you're hung up for three hours. Forte, what about you? My mom likes to dance and uh, she's not a dancer, though. <laughs> so <laughs> we're in Home Depot and I must have been like 12 or 13. So you're at that age where, you know, you get embarrassed by your parents quite easily and so, you know, the music's on. She starts dancing in an aisle. She's dancing away. And I'm going, Mom, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> and so anyways, we, we get help from an employee. After we're done with the employee, he turns around. He goes, Mom, by the way, nice dancing. And I was just so embarrassed. <laughs> but nowadays, I laugh about it. And I laugh about it. And my mom, like, anytime there's a little bit of music on, she starts dancing. And I'm always like, Mom, stop it. Stop it, but I can't help but smile and laugh just because it's just it's so funny. <laughs> Especially when she tries to attempt the floss. Last time my brother was in town, we're, oh my both, God. we're both looking at her, we're both looking at ourselves and going, like, Mom, you have to stop. Just stop. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, I love that. Uh, what about you, Greg? Oh, my mom. My mom was so funny. I, I was just uh, thinking about the time I was in a store with her in High River, Alberta. I'd been in Alberta for about a, a year and a half, and I was singing along to a Garth Brooks song, and my mom smacked me in the arm. She goes, what are you doing? I go, what do you mean? You're singing to a Garth Brooks song? You don't like country music? Yeah, actually, I do. She just shook her head. But the funniest thing my mom ever did it goes back to 85, 86. I can't remember the year exactly. It wasn't my hockey playoffs, but it was my brother Kevin's hockey playoffs. Isaac Brock versus Westdale Community Center City Championships. This is very not high-level hockey, but very important to those involved. And in game two of the best of three series, 
one of the parents on the other team did not like a call that the ref made and threw a garbage can on the ice in protest. Well, for the next game, my mom made sure all the parents on the Isaac Brock side had Oscar the Grouch masks <laughs> just to taunt the parent on the other side. I thought it was brilliant. It was hilarious. And in the end, ended up working with, at Chi-Chi's, the, par- the, the son of the parent who threw the garbage can. <laughs> so a uh, very small town uh, Winnipeg action there. Oscar the Grouch. Mom, great move. Loren? My mom is a fabulous cook, but she multitasks a lot while she's cooking. And so whenever a meal involves garlic bread or toast, it inevitably is forgotten about is it broils in the oven. And all of a sudden you'll have the fire alarm or smoke alarm going off and everybody laughs. But, oh, mom, there you go again. To the point where it's a running joke where she might send a photo of a meal she's cooked and said, oh, you'll be upset that I didn't burn the toast this time. Or when she comes over and she cooks something or you go to her place and it's not burned, you're like, come on, mom, you can do better than this. Like we all laugh about how often she's burnt the toast over the years. At some point when we were out of lockdowns last year, they were visiting and I was working from home and I heard the alarm go off upstairs in the middle of the show and I was like yes mama's burnt something and I was so pumped and I race upstairs in the commercial break and it turns out it was just the shower has now set off you know from the the steam and in the shower set off the alarm and I can't tell you how disappointed I was I was like ah no burnt toast she's like no but I'm sure I can whip some up right now if that's what you're into and it's like that running joke right you talk about Cam and Jeff you make fun of your mom for the little things and then you miss it so much i can't every single time i make anything that involves broiling something in the oven i now set the timer because i will forget like my mom and it will be burnt and man do i appreciate that random skill it's a skill (laughs) so tell us a story about something funny that your mom has done like if it was uh maybe she played a prank on you or if it's just something funny that she does that makes you smile that makes you happy tell us a story 204-780-6868-915 we shall select today's qualifier for the 500 hundred dollar gift card for namath diamonds which we will give away on friday I will just quickly, as I've done some quick Googling here, and this is what I get for reading something just as I'm cracking a mic. Yeah, this great molasses flood happened in 1919 and killed almost two dozen people. So this was a genuine tragedy. But thanks for, I had no idea. So thank you for letting me know about that. That's, I'll uh, need to read some more on that. But in the meantime, we want to ask you to tell us something funny about mom. And Brad paints a great picture here. Uh, This happened on the football field. Brad says, I broke my leg playing football a long time ago, 40 years ago, when there were no trained trainers. I heard it break, and I knew it. Both teams surrounded me, and the so-called trainer said, it's not broken, as he was moving it all around, and the tears were flowing from my eyes in pain. All I can recall from this is my mom calling my name, Bradley, Bradley, as the guys were being tossed aside and parting like the Red Sea. Nothing was going to stop her, and as it turns out, I had to wear a cast. For four weeks. Mom, Mama Bear is coming to get her cub. Stand aside. My boy is hurt. You don't get in the way of that. You should put the mom on the team while you're at it. (laughs) Do you feel that protective mom, Mama Bear instinct, Loren? Yeah, but I, like, I... And yes, for sure. But I don't know if you need to be a mom to have that instinct. You know, like, if you love someone and they mean a lot to you, you're going to get in there and do what you can to save them, help them, fix them, you know, hurt you hurt for them. I, th- I think I think, 
it grows and it's amplified when you have kids, but you might already have it for something else. Like you might do that to protect like a Santa Lucia pizza. <laughs> like, get out of the way of my delivery guy. <laughs> Must save the pizza. What? <laughs> Don't let I the- will help you. Pepperoni. <laughs> uh, you must get home safe. And Loren and Greg, so I guess Loren will start with you with this amazing story from Len. Yeah, Len starts by saying, my mom, who I miss immensely, was a huge baseball fan and also played. My three brothers and I played for different teams. She used to come watch us play, and I don't know who I felt more sorry for, us or the ump, when she didn't agree with the call. One game, there was a close play at home, and my mom wasn't happy and started yelling at the ump. Never a profanity. Well, a couple of innings later, I came up to bat, and my mom started in on the ump. Now, the ump was a friend of my eldest brother and knew my mom quite well. Needless to say, I got called out on three straight balls called strikes. The ump turned to my mom and said, That was for phoning my mom years ago, squealing on me for something I did. My mom didn't say one word. I wasn't happy as I walked back to the bench, hearing the ump laughing and asking if mom is going for drinks after the game. She was loved and called mom by all our friends over the years, and many showed up at her funeral to share stories of similar experiences they had with her. Thanks for sharing that with us this morning, Len. Great story, Len, and we will determine who our next qualifier is at 9.15, so keep those text messages coming. You still have one hour to get in on this. Canadians have repeatedly been told, get the first vaccine available to them. But is that advice changing? Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization is recommending Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine to adults 30 years and older. It's similar to advice issued last month for the Oxford AstraZeneca shot. But now there's a notable caveat that people may wish to wait for Pfizer or Moderna. mRNA vaccines are the preferred vaccine. NASI's Vice Chair Dr. Shelley Deeks says both J&J and AstraZeneca are safe and effective, but have a potential risk of causing a rare blood clotting disease. She says individuals need to have an informed choice. To be vaccinated with the first vaccine that's available or to wait for an mRNA vaccine. They need to be aware that those are the options available to them. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So now what? What do we do with this information? Epidemiologist Cynthia Carr is the founder of Epi Research and our guest this morning. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. So I I have to say it was about clear as mud by the end of the day yesterday in terms of how I felt about this, because like they said, the advice was to get the first vaccine available. And then the advisory committee threw this wrinkle in it. What do you make of it? It's definitely um, surprising, and I can understand why it creates uh, confusion for Canadians. Um, the reality is that, that you know, uh, AstraZeneca, for example, has been used in 135 countries. Um, so we need to remember that the data we're receiving are coming from millions and millions and millions of doses. And that's a good sign that we're learning more. So at this point, um, it, it appears that the risk of these rare blood clots, primarily in women age 18 to 49, uh, is perhaps as high as one in 100,000. But your risk of contracting COVID is much higher 
higher than that and your risk of severe outcomes if you do contract COVID is still high um, in terms of hospitalization or death or what we're learning about the long hauler impact in people that are even just mildly ill. So all of these things need to be weighed in terms of risk factor um, when, when understanding what, what a good decision would be uh, and where your risks really are uh, in, in uh, determining whether to wait or to proceed as uh, the messaging has been with uh, the first dose offered to you. Cynthia, I'm a huge fan of transparency on all levels uh, from government. Government agencies would never, mm -hmm. ever for a million years uh, suggest that any of this information be suppressed. But it feels as though we're spending more time talking about the handful of situations, a handful of people. And of course, the one tragedy in Quebec where, where mm -hmm. a, a woman died with these blood clots versus talking about the things you just discussed and outlining and reminding people what the risks really are. What is NASI's role in this and what should it be? Well, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with NASI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, this is a group of volunteers uh, who have full-time jobs, many of whom are uh, pediatricians. And if you aren't familiar with the uh, childhood vaccine schedule, it's not unusual for changes to be made over time. There's new uh, protocols, uh, maybe new risks identified, maybe new vaccine uh, that's being developed with, uh, you know, ongoing technology so it's not unusual to recommend changes to recommend slightly different doses based on risk factors so this is a group of people that's used to this happening um, and so what seems sort of normal and factual to that group can seem very alarming to the rest of Canadians. But may I just add, when we talk about the first dose offered to you, trust your healthcare system and understand that if you are at an enhanced risk and you uh, identify that, uh, and, or it's identified for you based on your age, there will be recommendations for you about taking a different vaccine. Trust the healthcare system. And then in terms of the other vaccines, Johnson & Johnson, that's a single shot. But AstraZeneca, mm -hmm. there's a second shot required, like there is with Pfizer. Can you mix vaccines or is the advice to still try to get, you know, if you got AstraZeneca, then get AstraZeneca the second time? So that research is occurring now, and the uh, again, the National Advisory Committee uh, is on top of reviewing that. Remember right now, uh, about a third of Canadians have had one dose. Our focus uh, is to get as many people uh, with at least one dose. So it's really not an option to be looking at your second dose right now. So there is time for that review to occur. Of course, none of this happened in clinical trials. The clinical trials were all very siloed, Moderna to Moderna, Pfizer to Pfizer. Pfizer, AstraZeneca to AstraZeneca. So we need to have enough data to really see uh, what the implications are of, of different doses, because again, they're different vectors. One's a messenger RNA and one's a, an adenovirus vector. So there's, there's lots of complexity to review there. Epidemiologist Cynthia Carr, the founder of Epi Research, joining us live once more on 680 CJOB. Cynthia, thank you as always. We very much appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Thank you. Greg, Sherry, with a great text. Yeah, my mom is terrible with directions. One Sunday, my mom was picking myself and three of my friends up from wheelies. 
This was when Wheelie's was still on McPhillips and we lived in North Kildonan. Well, we ended up in Selkirk, <laughs> despite my telling my mom that she missed the turn she was supposed to take. Other time, we just got back from vacation and my mom wanted to go get our dog from the boarding facility. Well, two hours later, we get a phone call from my mom because she's lost... <laughs> <laughs> and at the border, I can only assume it's the U.S. border. The boarding facility was just off the perimeter. We are still not sure how she ended up at the border versus the border, I suppose. <laughs> like, at what point does one go, I think maybe I've gone too far. Like, the border. But too much patience, right? <laughs> Great story, sure Sherry. I'm pretty sure it's this way. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Great story, Sherry. I love that. Keep those coming. 204-780-6868. In the meantime, as we speak, a Winnipegger is marching through the streets wearing a full military uniform and carrying 10 kilograms of gear. His name is Bob Williams, and he's an honorary colonel with the Fort Garry Horse Regiment. And his goal today is to walk a full 20 kilometers as part of Nijmegen Marches. And that's a community in the Netherlands, and I did Google how to say that. And so if anyone is uh, of Dutch descent in the community and wants to call and correct, please do. But this march is basically the largest walking event in the world. And Bob's participating for a really special reason. He joins us now. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. How are you this fine morning? Well, a better question would be, how are you? How far along are you and whereabouts are you? We're at the uh, mid-mark uh, uh, on the Hart Trail. Uh, and uh, so uh, some of the, the group that have been with us, the civilians, are uh, now leaving. Uh, they've been for the first 10K. And I have uh, four Fort Garry Horse uh, soldiers, to my surprise, showed up at my house this morning to join me on this march. Oh, it's an amazing thing you're doing. Tell us a bit about the Nijmegen March. What, what's this about uh, in terms of getting people just to walk, but also you're in uniform, so what's the connection there? Well, the Nijmegen was started way back, I think, 1906 by the uh, king of uh, Holland, and he said, I want my people to be in shape, and he decided to have this Nijmegen March, which was 20K a day for four days in a row. But uh, and he would take it to different towns all around Holland. Eventually, it ended up in one town called Nijmegen. And after the war, uh, the military uh, asked uh, the king at the time uh, if they could join. And uh, of course, the Dutch are very, very thankful for what the military did for them in the Second World War. And they said, absolutely. And however, we would like people to know that it's military. So we would like you to wear a uniform. Well, yes, that's fine. Well, you know, when you wear a uniform, don't you have a knapsack on? He says, uh, yes, yes, we do. Well, we think you should have that 20-pound knapsack on, too. Oh, that's, that's fine. Well, and you know, the civilians are doing 20K. You're military. Uh, we would like you to do 40K. Uh, let me get this straight, sir. You, you want us in full military with a heavy knapsack doing 40K every day for four days in a row. Sounds like a great idea, and it's been going on for quite a few years. This one, uh, because COVID, I was going to be uh, next last year, which was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Holland. I was going to be there with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. But then COVID hit, and that got canceled. Now, if you know the Dutch, they are the best at remembering 
and they are the best at partying. They know how to party. And so the 5th of May is their liberation day. And you would want to be in Amsterdam on the 5th of May or any town in, uh, in Holland. On the 4th of May, they have what is called the Silent March. And at that time, people come from their homes, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, kids, and they quietly walk down the street to the main drag. They walk down the main drag to the, the plaza, all quiet. Everybody's not saying a word. It's amazing. And uh, the only speeches given are, this plaque is being given by these people, this plaque is being given by this. The Silent March is one of the most moving things I have ever been in. So, Bob, it's Greg Mackling here. Great Hi. to hear your voice. And uh, just, you know, you and I have spent some special time on the air over the years, usually late yeah. at night with our <laughs> with our now late friend Stan Butterworth, who we lost back February 20th of 2020. And I'm thinking about Stan today and and the, the, the incredible uh, legacy of the Fort Gary Horse Regiment. And just expand a little bit more on that relationship between Canada and, and Holland, if you wouldn't mind, Bob, because I think sometimes uh, we underestimate, and a lot of us don't even really know the lengths to which uh, the Dutch have gone to honour Canada in memory of the liberation which took place uh, on this, uh, well, tomorrow, uh, 76 years ago. Yeah. The Dutch do it better than any, and I've been through uh, on war tours through Europe, but in my opinion, the Dutch do it better than anybody. Uh, I was there one year during a terrible drought where everything was dry as a bone, and you would turn the corner into this road, and all of a sudden there's sprinklers going on in the cemetery where our dead are buried, and it's green as grass. But let me tell you, uh, you mentioned Stan, who we lost uh, last year at 96, he and his brother Fred were Fort Gary Horse soldiers in the tanks. And they went overseas, and uh, in uh, April the 15th, Fred uh, was uh, in his tank at uh, Groningen, and he led his tank into the streets. A German came around the corner with a Panzerfaust bazooka, shot the tank, and Fred was killed. The other soldiers made it out. Stan was in reserve in his tank further back. Stan didn't get to find out about his brother's passing until about two days later. And he said to me, he said, the hardest thing he ever had to do was to write his mother and tell his mother about his brother dying. And then in the same breath, he said, but really... The hardest thing was for my mother, because she then now knew that her oldest son was killed and her remaining son was still in Europe in a tank. Fred died on the, 5th, on the 13th of April, 1945. VE Day was May 8th. Can you imagine? Not Less than a month ago, and he got killed. We will remember them. Why is it so important for you to personally participate in this event every year? Uh, I was born in 45. So it gives you some idea what my dad did when he got home. 
And uh, my dad didn't serve in the military, but he served for the military as many civilians did. He was seconded. He was with the CNR, and his job was to find the different lost uh, railway cars that were so important. And so dad didn't come home for about uh, two years, from 94, or 44 to 45, uh, because he was in charge of finding that rail car someplace in Saltcote, Saskatchewan, or wherever, and he did a damn good job. Besides, I've, you know, freedom is not free, and I know that. And I see our soldiers, and I, uh, it's a debt that I'm honored to be able to, to pay and serve. Well, Bob, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for sharing these wonderful stories and, and reminding us of this important day, but our connection to uh, with Holland. And before we let you go, I have to ask you, you're about 10 kilometers into this walk now. Yeah. You're carrying 10 kilograms of gear. What do you have on you? Uh, well, I have a small pack, uh, like a day pack, mm-hmm. and it's uh, got water in it and some goodies, and then <laughs> my uh, weights uh, from... Uh, my uh, when I'm exercising, so it's. <laughs> I'm hoping to drink at least uh, five pounds of water so I can lighten it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. Thank you for what you're doing, and keep us posted. Well, I'll have to. I'll send you a shoot you a text in an hour's time and see how it's going. Sure. Thank you very much for what you for for allowing me to to tell you about our soldiers and particularly the Fort Garry Horse. I have four soldiers here with me. Uh, that have all come volunteer, just showed up to say, let's do this march, and we're going to go back and finish the last 10 now. Thank you. Bob Williams joining us live on 680 CJOB, Honorary Colonel of the Fort Garry Horse Regiment. His goal is to walk a full 20 kilometres this morning as part of the Nijmegen Marches, which is the largest walking event in the world. (laughs) Mackling McGarry McNabb. We continue to ask you to text us a story about something funny about your mom. Something funny your mom did, something funny your mom does. 204-780-6868. At 9.15, we shall reveal our second qualifier for Celebrate Mom with Namath Diamonds. $500 gift card. We're giving it away on Friday. So one in four chance. And uh, Loren, this text from Derek, I I, I don't know. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. I think you're going to like it. Well, you know me. I think you're right. You think you've read this one right. Derek texted to say, Mom joke warning. My mom drove a couple buddies and me to a Transcona Railer game when we were younger. Once we're all in the car, she asks, do you know who won the boxing match? We all say, no idea. She says, well, it turns out Sweet Marie beat the nuts out of O. Henry. (laughs) We all kind of looked at her and rolled her eyes. I miss those mom jokes. I, I love a good, you know me. I think, well, moms are funnier than dad. Just, First of all, well, and like, wow. how did it, like the term dad joke is? <laughs> I don't so... know what which which is the mom joke and which is the dad joke. Like, are they not just kind of the same? Yeah, I think the dad jokes traditionally are a little more groan worthy than the mom jokes. Yeah, so is that it? The dad jokes are just like straight up groaners, whereas the mom joke is more know. is a bit cuter. Like, what do you is call kind of a small mom? Stronger. I think mom, moms come with a stronger. No. joke game typically i mean there are still jokes that my grandpa told me and my dad told me that are straight out of the groan jar and uh <laughs> let me tell you they're still good they still work but holy smokes i don't know my mom never went for those stereotypical 
jokes at all. I I, I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know. You tell me, Loren. It, the mom joke is there. Is there the same? I, I don't get it. I don't get the of, difference. Like, like, did they get passed down from generation to generation? No. And I don't have any, quite frankly. Like, that's a like. I like that joke, but that could have just as easily been a so-called dad joke. I don't know what the difference is between a good mom joke and a good dad joke. Like, I just, they, I think there's just been that that history of of passing jokes down from one generation to the really? next. Most of the ones. What, what joke got passed down your generation? Like it got sent oh, with I grandfather's I watch? I can't tell. Most of the ones my grandpa told me, <laughs> I can't tell them on the air, but they were passed down and they were, they were things that, um, uh, how do I put this? They were, they were an, 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 uh, an introduction to, um, adult life, the adult world and they were they were funny as heck. I don't know. Like when you sit around at a dinner table, who typically starts the 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 cavalcade of of joke telling? Usually it's dad, isn't it? And then and then mom will have like the best one at the end of it. Dad'll tell five, mom tells one, and the one mom tells is the best. Well, I'm on Reddit right now. I just Googled what's the difference between mom jokes and dad jokes. And I'm actually on a page called dad jokes. So the answer to this question, I suspect, is going to be a dad joke. What's the difference between mom jokes and dad jokes? Mom jokes give birth to laughter. Dad jokes plant the seed to laugh. Ew. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I I would say that's a validation of them being more grown worthy. Yeah, I, I think know. the mom jokes typically are better. Let us know what you think. Is there a difference between a mom joke and a dad joke? 204-780-6868. And remember that at 9.15, we shall reveal our next qualifier for Celebrate Mom with Namath Diamonds. $500 gift card up for grabs on Friday. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. I got a new one. I got to tell this. I don't want to sleep like a baby. I want to sleep like my husband. <laughs> Sorry, I just went looking for mom jokes. (laughs) Sorry, I completely interrupted Brett. I was like, this has got to be said. This is a great one. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. In our next segment, we find our second qualifier for Celebrate Mom with Namath Diamonds. $500 gift card that we're giving away on Friday morning. Michelle was our first qualifier yesterday. Maybe you are our qualifier today. And Greg, we were just having a quick chat about mom jokes versus dad jokes. What have you, have you dug something up on this? No, I just, you know, uh, Loren, oh, what's the difference? Here's a, here's an example. You go to the restaurant, you order your meal, and of course, uh, your dad feels compelled to uh, introduce himself to the server and uh, joke around with the server. Moms don't typically don't go down that road, at least in my experience as a server. And then the classic dad joke, when you bring the bill, and a dad will always go, we didn't order that <laughs> because they never heard that one before. Yeah. See, I think that's and, funny. you know, mom's not bringing that. All she's bringing is uh, rosy cheeks and head in her face when dad breaks that one out. So that when you're asking the difference, I think that's one example of the difference between the dad joke versus the mom joke. My buddy Kent loves to to do that with the servers, and uh, every time his wife Eileen wants to slap him, I can tell. So, yeah, good there. That's a good point, G Max. So, in our next segment, we will find our next qualifier. I have gone looking for the difference too, and have found a 
website that's basically just very plainly states that the jokes for moms go more like this. Eight-year-old says to mom, I'm hungry. Mom says, have some fruit. Eight-year-old says, I don't want fruit. Mom says, you're not hungry then. (laughs) That's just wisdom. That's just a fact. Just like really just obvious. Eight-year-old, I'm bored. I can make you not bored. Do the dishes. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's good. That's good. (laughs) All right. So listen, earlier this morning, we were discussing emergency preparedness with Lisa Gilmore, emergency management coordinator for the city of Winnipeg. And we asked what sort of emergencies they contemplate when making contingencies for our safety. Yeah, And I wanted to ask if Chinese built rockets coming crashing down to earth was on the list of things they're discussing this week or any other time. Why might I be asking about this, Loren? Yeah, here is the actual headline from spacenews.com. Huge rocket looks set for uncontrolled re-entry following Chinese space station launch. Scott Young is an active amateur astronomer and a past president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. He's also the planetarium astronomer at the Manitoba Museum. Say astronomer three times as quickly, guys. Uh, Scott, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Okay, so this article is from a few days ago, from April 30th. Uh, I was reading a few different stories online, and one of, my, one of the quotes that stood out was from an expert saying, this isn't good, which feels yeah, that's, kind of obvious. That's, yeah. <laughs> Where are yeah, things at a, with this rocket? Situation. You know, the, this thing, so the, the Chinese space station was launched on the 30th, and it, it uses their biggest rocket. And the last time they launched their biggest rocket, I guess that they're right at the limit of what it can what it can do, and so they couldn't really include any extra fuel on board to help it re-enter in a controlled kind of way, or maybe something went wrong or whatever. But this thing last year fell out of the sky, and these giant steel rods landed in somebody's backyard in in uh, the Ivory Coast in Africa, and I mean we're meters away from hitting a, a house full of people. So this random stuff falling out of the sky is no, is not good, as the experts say. This particular launch just happened, um, and same thing seems to be the case. The rocket is uncontrolled. There's no plan to bring it down safely into the ocean, which is sort of the standard procedure. And it seems that uh, it's just going to fall out of the sky whenever it does, and it'll land wherever it does. And again, that's that's not good. So how much... I guess, are people keeping an eye on this thing? Like, do they know exactly when, once it starts to make its descent, are they going to know where it's going to hit? Oh, yeah. Basically, um, they're they're tracking it, you know, minute by minute, pretty much. And we know its orbit. And so, luckily for us in in Manitoba and and across Canada, it doesn't come far enough north of the equator to come over us. But the, the possible paths basically go across most of the United States and most of Central and South America, all of Africa, the Middle East, India, China, the Mediterranean, Australia, like basically everything between plus and minus 41 degrees latitude, the whole center part of the earth. That's where, that's where most of the people live. Um, the thing is, right now, they know that it's going to come down on the 10th of May, plus or minus 41 hours. That plus or minus is way too big to really know anything at this point. So as the days get closer to that, that, that plus minus will start to shrink. And once it gets down to around six hours or so, we'll be able to say, okay, these are the areas at risk. Now, even though this sounds scary, I have to say, Earth is a big place. And the odds of anything falling out of the sky and landing on someone is ridiculously low. I mean, the Earth is mostly ocean. The land is mostly unpopulated. I mean, even 
we've got all these big cities and, you know, in the movies, it seems that things always crash right into New York or London or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of empty fields out there too. So I'm not personally worried about something falling onto someone's head. It's more the principle that like, if you're going to put stuff into space, do it properly. Like take care of your stuff, take your garbage out, you know, do your recycling and, and don't just hope that no one gets hurt from your, your, your uh, situation. I mean, it's kind of, SpaceX is kind of doing the same thing, actually. They had a, a, an uncontrolled rocket come in a few uh, few weeks ago uh, over Seattle, and some pieces landed in somebody's backyard. I mean, that's just not the way that we should be doing things. If this is the, if this is the new space race, I'm not really that interested. Yeah, it sounds irresponsible. This Skylab, Scott, was that 78 or 79? Yeah, I think it was 79. And, uh, yeah, big pieces of that came down in Australia. And, uh, like the, and not not pieces like foam insulation or things like that, like giant metal uh, fuel tanks and stuff like that fell out of the sky uh, that weighed a couple hundred pounds each. So, I mean, you wouldn't want to get hit by that. You certainly wouldn't, you know, again, the odds are really low, but, you know, somebody's got bad luck out there, right? <laughs> you, don't, you just don't want to have anybody hurt or even property damage or things like that. So this has happened before. Uh, in Skylab, it was, it was kind of, planned to bring it down in a proper way and then some bunch of things went wrong with that um the the russians had a, a space station salyut 7 that came down in the in the 70s as well and uh, spread stuff all across northern canada where, where luckily the population is pretty low but um yeah we just I, I know it's tough to get into space i know there's a push to cut costs but safety of the people li- living on earth shouldn't be one of the things we cut well, is there a rule there, Scott? I'm just curious, you know, like this is the first time something's come back, in theory, uncontrolled since the 1990s. So there's obviously some sort of rule or regulation. But what happens if you break the the so-called rule? It's not, is it a law? Well, there's a, there's, there are more guidelines than rules. It's kind of like the pirate code, to be honest. You, you, you get these, uh, if something is larger than 10 tons, you're not supposed to let it fall back uncontrolled. Now, um, SpaceX gets away with it by breaking their rockets into smaller pieces. And so essentially it gets to, you know, fall out of the sky uncontrolled and they get away with it. But that's kind of like pushing the boundary of the, of the rules. Um, the Chinese don't always tend to care about the international guidelines or rules when they, when they do their space program. They're, they, they do their own thing. They don't partner with people. They don't really recognize other um, sort of authorities. And, the law has never caught up with space. I mean, you've got companies that are putting stuff into space willy-nilly right now, and it's, it's like the Wild West. There is no overseeing body that is in charge of space because who, you know, we base all of our authority on national boundaries. Well, there's no national boundaries in space. I mean, if you're in orbit, you go over every country in the world and there's nothing they can do about it. And so enforcement would be really, really hard. So it is kind of a mess up there. Scott Young with the Manitoba Museum joining us live on 680 CJOB as always to talk all things space. Scott, pleasure as always, sir. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, it is time to find our second qualifier for Celebrate Mom with Namath Diamonds. $500 gift card. We're giving it away on Friday. We've been asking you to text us a story about something funny about your mom, whether it's something funny that she did or something funny that she does and Loren you pointed out and this is one of our runners up well they're all runners up because they're all such good stories but this one involves dentures 
Quick story about my mom, they write. When we were kids, five of us, we would get into trouble and she would sit us down on the couch and put us on blast. She was delivering a particularly energetic tirade against us when midstream of profanities, her entire top plate flew out of her mouth and landed on my lap. No one said a word or moved a muscle. I reached down and gingerly picked up her false teeth out of my lap and handed them to her. That was enough to send her into gales of laughter and soon all five of us kids were laughing until we cried. We still talk about that day whenever we all get together. Because you don't know. Could do, come. I, do I acknowledge the teeth that have flown out of mom's <laughs> mouth or will that make things worse? Uh, Janine is today's qualifier though because Janine's mom... Oh, bless her. My mom is always worried about burdening me. My dad is bedridden, and she is his primary caregiver. One morning, I was on my way to work, and my mom calls me and says, I think I'm having a heart attack. You need to come to the house and make dad breakfast. (laughs) I immediately freak out, asking, has she called 911? And she says, no, I'm driving myself to the hospital. Just get dad an Egg McMuffin and a large coffee. I tell her, I'm on my way to the hospital. But she insists I stop and feed my dad. A few minutes later, she calls me from the hospital. And indeed, she was having a heart attack by the time I got there. After dutifully dropping off the Egg McMuffin and coffee as ordered, she was in surgery getting four stints put in. When she woke up, what do you think her first question was? Of course it was, did you take dad as breakfast? (laughs) Oh, bless your mom. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. All right, G-Mac, you've been waiting patiently. You have you have a joke you want to share. Yeah, Marlene emailed it to me. I guess she was enjoying our back and forth about the difference between dad jokes and mom jokes. And she sent this to G-Mac at cjob.com. My family was all surprised and shocked when our very, underlined, proper mother told us this, what was for her very risque joke. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard to get her poor daughter a dress. When she got there, the cupboard was bare, and so was her daughter, I guess. That's it? That's That's disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, there's going to be a rhyme with dress, and I was thinking, you know, maybe... Yeah, dress, I guess. No, that's... Guess rhymes with dress, McNabb. I, I, I got to be honest. Did you get I it? Had to for, you I had to force out that laugh. There. I had to force out that laugh. The cupboard I couldn't was even there, get there. So was the daughter because she didn't have a dress. No, I get see, that. I get it. Risque. Oh, are you sure? No, I okay. got it. I just didn't see the risque. I guess the naked daughter. Naked there daughter. Anyway. Get so it? There you go. She's there's, naked. There's, there's That's what mom, you should have followed up with. <laughs> okay. And I just want to quickly read this text on moms doing something funny and then we'll move on. This one came in after we already named our qualifier, which was Janine. My mother used to walk my kids to the bus stop and wait for their school bus. One day the kids were crying. They could not find the cat. She promised the kids she would find the cat while they were at school. So as she was walking back to the house, she found the cat, chased it down, and brought it home. After several scratches and bites, she managed to get her key in the door. The door opened, and there was our cat standing there looking at her. We called my mom the cat kidnapper, the cat napper for many years after that. Grabbed the wrong cat. She stole somebody's cat. I like it. 
There you go. Appreciate the stories. 204-780-6868. The first ever under-15 AAA female hockey team is coming to the Wheat City. Yeah, and then Brandon, that's a real positive sign that both the numbers and the talent is there to make an elite team work. The AAA female team is a first for Brandon, and it will include Greg and all female hockey staff. Yeah, it's extraordinary. When my one of my fake nephews was growing up in Brandon, the best player on his team was a girl. And so it's nice to know that this program is coming to fruition. Amy Dirksen is one of those staff members serving as program support. Amy, congratulations and good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, you bet. So tell us, what does this mean to you, to Brandon, to, you know, girls that play hockey in Manitoba, to to have this team, to have this program in place? Yeah, well, that is a loaded question, so I will try my best. Um, to me personally, so uh, Lorraine and I really played hockey together. We laced up in Minnedosa, Manitoba. Um, and I have been playing hockey, started a ringette. Girls weren't really encouraged at the time to play hockey. Switched in junior high um, and played on a regional team. So it was the Westman Falcons. Um, so it just feels like it's a long time coming. Um, these players in Brandon would have had to filter into uh, another program. Um, having something here in Brandon for our female athletes um, to feed into, to have female athletes to look up to, uh, I think it's huge. And then on top of that, to have an all-female coaching staff is also wonderful. Um A friend of mine said, you know, it be it, right? It's that whole mentorship, um, seeing yourself and others and what you can become. Um, It's huge. And so uh, to have, um, to be able to provide these female athletes with female leaders who've played at a, you know, a university and a college level. Um, The head coach, Chris Kirkup, is is a product of the University of Manitoba. And she was on the national team that won the champions, uh, the championship. That's huge, right? That's, that's great. So um, you can obviously tell I'm very excited about it. <laughs> so up until now, then, how would it have worked for girls in this age group uh, looking to play hockey in the area? Yeah, so to play at that um, higher level, they would have fed into um, the Westman Wildcat program. So that is, that's really the program that um, morphed out of what I was in, um, which is the Westman Falcons. Um, and so they would have been traveling, um, with, you know, a rural-based team, I think, you know, the important thing to not lose sight of is the more of these teams we can create, the more opportunity there is for more girls to play at that higher level, right? Um, and that's what I think is really, really exciting. I want to mention, jump in here, Amy said in that first answer there, guys, that we had played hockey together in Minnesota. I played one year of hockey, and that was my first and only year. Amy played many years of hockey going on to play for the Bisons at the University of Manitoba. So I don't want to – we're not equals in this conversation, although I like to pretend that I am, Amy. For, when you look back on, you know, how far things have come, and in some cases maybe how far they haven't come, given that this is the first ever under-15 team for – females in that part of the province what's been the struggle along the way is it keeping the girls in the sport is it giving them the opportunity to like like this because i'm guessing up until now the numbers haven't been there to make this work yeah and i think you know um i'm working alongside our female program um director jared franklin and you know he has a lot of experience he has two daughters that are coming up and 
I'm starting to see it now as well as my, you know, as I get more familiar with the admin side of sport, um, you lose a lot of players once they hit kind of junior high. They get interested in other things. You're competing with, you know, um, school sports, high school sports. Um, I personally think that um, having opportunities for girls to play together is really big. Um, and showing them opportunities within their own communities where they can see them set their path. You know, I can see myself moving on to university and playing at this sport, which is an incredible experience. Um, I have so many great memories and things to say about being able to be a part of the Bison program. Um, I think that that's a big, that's a big part of it. It's opportunity um, for sure. So, Amy, maybe uh, quantify that a little bit more. You know, you mentioned in the past, and, and I brought it up also, that that, that young women and, and girls might have had to play with the boys and young men uh, to take their, their hockey to the next level once they got to a certain age. And there will be some listening, some that might say, Oh well, that's that's good for them if they can if they can uh, compete at that level. That that's going to make them stronger overall. But talk about how many girls and how many young women that excludes if that's the only program or only avenue open to them. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. Um, and so house programs are still um, a part of Hockey Brandon. Um, so working towards doing both, right? So providing opportunities to play at that higher level, um, but also providing um, those that maybe aren't going to make the level still with development and growth and not forgetting about the importance of, at the end of the day, I mean, you play sport to have fun. uh, And I think that that's the most important part. So um, absolutely, we need to make sure that we continue to invest in those grassroots programs um, I am U7 program director for Hockey Brandon, so I'm responsible for that early um, Timbit age, and it's really important, right, that we continue their development. Um, I know at U9 they have all um, girl skates, which I think is great. So normally, you know, on a, on a regular season, they play um, in boys' teams, some of them, um, looking to bring those girls together so that they can bond. Um, as a player, I've played on men's teams, I've played in all men's rec leagues, and there's something about playing with women. Um, it, it's just impactful, it's fun, um, and it makes it, it's the reason why I continue to play now, or I attempt to play, I should say. <laughs> um, but it's a big motivator for me, that, that kind of female dynamic that you have. So absolutely, at the grassroots level, we need to keep developing Um, I'm looking at what kind of programs I can do to help skill development with other players uh, to help them work on their skills and help keep them engaged as well. Hockey is beautiful because you can play anywhere in Canada um, and you can play up until I hope to be playing when I'm 80 years old, right? There's lots of um, chances and places for us to play in. So for anybody wanting to get involved in this uh, program, then what what do they do? Yeah, so if they're interested in learning more, um, I would reach out to Hockey Brandon uh, for more information. Um, definitely stay tuned to their social media. Um, I've been looking at, um, like I said, potentially working on some skill development camps that are specifically for girls um, that are in that kind of U15 that you know might find themselves not potentially on the team but close or interested in developing their skills. 
So we're really working on developing lots of programming um, to help our female athletes. Amy Dirksen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This is exciting stuff. We appreciate the time. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Loretta, it's great to chat with you. <laughs> great to hear your voice. I should have thanked you all for all these years later for being the only reason we ever got any goals 20 plus years ago. So appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. It is 946 on 680 CJOB. Mackling McGarry McNabb. What position did you play, Loren? I was defense. She showed up to town. It was the first girls hockey team established in Minnedosa. I wanted to play hockey as a kid, but that, that wasn't an option. And so I really just think it's so exciting to see how this has grown. She shows up. She's legit played in Winnipeg for years. And we're all just sort of kind of struggling our way, trying to even figure out how to put the equipment on. And she just tears down the ice top shelf. She was a heck of a player. Probably still is, is my guess. Well, I should, I should lace up again and see with her. Well, she's still on the line. Do you? We- Amy, do you want to have like a, a showdown with Loren? <laughs> oh yeah, showdown. On the line. Oh my god, I would love to lace up skates with you, McNabb. It'd be awesome. Skills competition. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. Fastest it wouldn't skater, be pretty. Shooting accuracy, passing accuracy. I can't oh, was we... I defense? I think I played defense. Amy, do you remember? Uh I I don't know. I just know um McNabb you were uh, entertaining in the change room. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I aim to please people. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good to hear some things just don't change. Amy Dirksen, thank you for joining us this morning on The Start. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.